Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and in last week's episode, we went over part two of Missing Jessica Van Zant Dietzel. We've gone over all the days leading up to her disappearance, who she was seen with, and where she was. But this week, in the third and final episode of Jessica's series, we're going to talk a little more about the wild tips that came in about what might have happened to Jessica, some evidence found, and what this case would look like if instead of looking at it from a missing person standpoint, if we looked at it from the standpoint of a homicide investigation. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. Okay, so if you think this case has a lot of moving parts, you are 100% correct. And it would have been easy to do a soft case or a case that was easier to unpack, but I'm never going to turn down a case, not by request and definitely not to a family seeking help. And as hard as it can be to keep up with all the players in this particular case, it has been an even wilder ride for her mother and Leah, who have been spearheading this investigation honestly more proactively than the police if you ask me. Once the freezer theory started taking off, it snowballed, and I mean it tumbleweeded. This theory left Albany, went through Lee County, and went as far as Baker County. A tip came in from Baker County from a pretty reliable source that Jessica had overdosed on Pick Avenue at Mr. Pick's house. Yes, I threw in another pseudonym. The source said that Jessica overdosed, was put into a deep freezer in the shed in that backyard, and eventually that freezer was reportedly taken to a local landfill. When Christina and Leah got this tip, they hopped in the car and headed to one of the two landfills in the area and called Albany's 911 dispatch and were told that someone would respond. They were also told that they should call one of the investigators on Jessica's case. So Christina called the investigator, but he was apparently busy and told her that he'd call her back. Mind you, this is a woman whose daughter is missing. Everyone has been talking about how she was put into a freezer, and now we have a physical place where that freezer containing her daughter might be, and she might get there before the police do. Spoiler alert, she does. Christina and Leah get to the landfill and no one is there. No officer has responded and the investigator has not called her back. Christina is just standing in front of a locked gate containing mountains of trash that she has to worry about her daughter's body being in and no one is there. Christina and Leah stand at the gate waiting and decide to call 911 again. There's actually a recording of this call that I'll put in Jessica's highlight at the top of my Instagram at the Heather Ashley. But fair warning, it's gut-wrenching. It's listening to a distraught and helpless mother trying to find her missing and reportedly deceased daughter in a landfill. The second 911 call went the same way the first one did. They said someone would come out, but no one ever did. At least not that day. 
Christina and Leah honestly contemplated cutting the lock and searching that landfill themselves, but instead, they knew that there was another landfill nearby that wasn't in use anymore. It could be easier to get a freezer in unnoticed, and they knew that they could easily get in and search themselves, so they headed over to that one. When they got there, they searched that second landfill for two or three hours until it got dark. They didn't find Jessica, and they still hadn't heard from the investigator, so they had no other choice but to go home for the night. Christina was shattered. Leah says that she'd never seen her more upset than that day, and rightfully so. Jessica's mother was just expected to go to sleep that night after searching through a landfill for the child she birthed without any police assistance. The following day, Leah woke up and called Baker County 911 where the tip came from and the dispatcher had an investigator call her. That investigator knew about the tip from the day before and was blown away that zero police officers had come to assist. He knew how credible this source was, so he called Albany PD and submitted the tip himself. That worked. 36 hours after they initially called Albany 911, someone finally showed up to the original landfill. Now, when I say someone, there were a lot of someones. The investigator calling in this tip got a huge police presence out there. Finally, Christina felt like someone cared about finding her daughter, but it shouldn't have taken 36 hours, their own foot search, two calls to 911, and an investigator from another county. Christina and Leah met them at the second landfill, the one Christina and Leah had searched themselves the night before. When they got there, Christina tried to explain everything that had happened in the last 36 hours, but she was getting really upset. So Leah stepped in and tried to explain to the officer what had been reported and where they had already searched. And I shit you not, Leah says that this officer stops her mid-sentence and says, I'm not discussing this with you. This case has nothing to do with you. Leah had waded through waist-deep floodwaters, gone into Tent City, interviewed drug dealers, found Jessica's clothing, and searched a fucking landfill. And when she tried to help Jessica's mother explain what was going on because she was beside herself with immeasurable grief at a landfill, a landfill, I remind you, she was told that nothing she had ever done mattered. Let that sink in. Because Christina and Leah had already searched the second landfill themselves, the police say that they're going to gain access to the first one and then search that. It was a Sunday, so they had to wait for the keys. Christina and Leah wanted to wait with them and be there for the search, but another tip came in that Christina and Leah had to respond to. Note, the police aren't the ones people are giving tips to, nor are they the ones initially tracking them down. So Christina and Leah left, assuming the police were going to do what they said they were going to do. That tip took a few hours to follow up on, but it didn't pan out, and it was getting dark at this point. So Leah tells Christina that she's going to ride by the landfill on their way home just to make sure police are searching it. But when she passes by, she notices the gates are open. So she calls Christina and tells her to meet her there. A whole ass Jessica squad shows up and goes inside the gates. And when they get in, there's no one. No one is searching the landfill. You can only imagine the soul-sucking disappointment Christina felt at this point. The Jessica squad sees some freezers, so they go in and check them, and Jessica's not in any of them. They go through mountains of compacted trash that they overturn with some sticks they found along the way, but they don't see any signs of Jessica there either. While they're searching, lo and be fucking hold, two cop cars pull up. 
Apparently, you don't need to call 911 to get a response. You just need to go through the fucking gates of a landfill at night, assuming the police are already there. The officers stop everyone and ask them what they're doing, and they explain what's going on and everything that's happened in the last 48 hours. These cops didn't even know who Jessica was or that she was missing. The officers started getting upset with them being there, so Christina calls the whole ass sheriff to let him know they're about to get arrested for criminal trespassing, but he's on vacation so he doesn't answer. Leah gets on the phone and calls an officer from Albany who's actually been really helpful to them, and he doesn't pick up either, but he does text her immediately and says that he's in the jail and he'll call her in a few. But Leah texts back saying that she's going to be joining him in the jail if he doesn't call her back, so he stops what he's doing and he does call her back. Leah interrupts the officers who are upset with them on the scene and says, hold on, I'm on the phone with an Albany police officer and he needs to speak with you. Now, this officer didn't want to take the phone, but Leah convinced her that she needed to talk to this Albany officer. And finally, she does. And everything stops. The cops on the scene just tell them to leave the area and the crisis is avoided. But this is the shit Jessica's family has had to go through to try and find her. Christina, being the good human she is, goes by the landfill the next day to apologize for trespassing, and they actually tell her that she can have access to their landfill anytime, day or night, and give her a card to call them if she ever needs them. They make sure to let her know that they weren't even the ones who called the police the previous night. The people who called the police on the Jessica squad were two fishermen who were actually back there themselves trespassing. But that's a whole different story. The next wild theory that came in was one that Jessica had overdosed and been taken to a local tree service lot that a lot of the names that have come up throughout Jessica's case have previously worked at. The tip was that two of the players involved had been seen there on an off day dumping something in an area that they shouldn't have been in. The tip was so solid that Doherty and Lee County Sheriff's Office actually had cadaver dogs respond and search the area that the two people were seen dumping at. Unfortunately, nothing was found. The dogs didn't hit and Christina was no closer to finding her daughter or knowing what happened to her. As the wild tips continued to spread and evolve and continue to be checked out and come up empty, an abandoned car is found. The car was found running in an alley downtown and was towed. It belonged to a guy named Stephen Etherton. Police have already released his name, so he doesn't need a nickname. People around town had noticed Stephen wasn't using his usual vehicle and started asking what the fuck was going on, and word got out that it had been found in an alley and that it was towed. Now, the reason this comes back to Jessica is because people started reporting that they'd seen Stephen with Jessica around the time she disappeared, and it was well known that Stephen was infatuated with Jessica. Christina heard about this and drove down to the tow yard it had been taken to, and they allowed her access to it. The car had absolutely nothing mechanically wrong with it. Dude just left it running in an alley and counted it as a lost and left it in a tow yard. Not weird, right? <laughs> So anyways, Christina opens the car and it's full of normal junk, but she's doing a thorough ass search. And in the glove compartment, she found a piece of mail that hadn't been opened yet. It was addressed to her missing daughter, Jessica. 
It was her Cash App card. So somehow, Jessica's Cash App card made its way into the glove compartment of Stephen Etherton's abandoned car. A few days after Jessica's mother tracked down Stephen's car and found that piece of mail addressed to her daughter, she says she got a call from the police department. They wanted to know where the car was so that they could look through it themselves. This is when the police decided that they needed to find this Stephen Etherton guy and blasted his name all over the media, trying to figure out where he was so they could talk to him. He had an open warrant, so if found, they'd be able to take him into custody. In the least shocking news of this case, it is someone from the Jessica squad who found him. But he wasn't in Georgia anymore. He was in Panama City, Florida at a campground by the beach. They let the PCB police know and they came out to talk to him, but the warrant he had in Georgia wasn't extraditable and they didn't find anything on him that they could arrest him for, so he was just kind of a sitting duck so long as he was in Florida. But old habits die hard, and Stephen was in jail in Florida before long, and because he was in custody, Doherty and Lee County were able to get in and question him. As this case goes, unfortunately, Stephen didn't give them anything. They left the meeting with him no closer than they've been before to knowing what happened to Jessica or where she might be. Up until this point, we've been looking at this case from a missing person standpoint, but when you physically talk to everyone who's been doing the footwork in Jessica's case, they understand that Jessica might not just be a missing person, that it's possible that she's been murdered, and that they've actually been working a homicide investigation that just doesn't have a body yet. When we look into missing persons, we look at their circle of friends, the people they talk to most, and the places they're seen at most frequently. We look into the days leading up to the last time they were heard from, and we see where we can go from there. And we've done that with Jessica, but I think it's important to explore the possibility that she might have been murdered. When we look into a homicide, we start with the last place a person was seen at and the last person to see them alive. That would have had to have been at the Deep South Motel based on her own communications with Messenger Guy. There have been a million wild theories about Pick Avenue, a freezer, the river, etc. But the bottom line is that the last place we know Jessica was ever seen alive was at the Deep South Motel and that she was using Phone Guy's phone. And no matter what crazy theory I've been presented, and trust me, you've only gotten a few of the probably 100 or more, I cannot get past where she was last seen and who may have been with her when she was there. We can talk about where her clothes were found, but she never stayed in one place long. We can talk about Tent City and everyone's seedy past and the notes left in the days prior to her going missing. But Jessica was alive on the 18th, and that matters. Knowing that that motel was the last place she was at, you'd want to go there and get a list of everyone who stayed there on the night of the 17th. I personally asked that motel if they keep these records and was told that they do. In fact, because of situations like this, in most places it's required that you actually provide a copy of your ID when you book your room. This motel isn't like a Hilton. For every person with a room booked, there's a good chance there was at least one or two other people in and out of that room throughout the night. 
Going through the text messages of those involved in this case, it's clear that they motel hopped a lot and there were at least two or three people on average staying in one room at a time and then endless guests throughout the day and night, whether they were hanging out, doing drugs, or other activities. So you'd want to compile a list of names who had rooms booked the night of the 18th and start calling people to the station. Once they're there, ask them about everyone who came into their room the night of the 17th and the morning of the 18th and ask if anyone else stayed the night. When you get those answers, add all those people to the list of persons to talk to about Jessica's disappearance. Once you get that full list down, you talk to every single one of them and show them a picture of Jessica and see who reported seeing her. For those who did, what time of night did you see her? Who did you see her with? What rooms did you see her go into? How was her demeanor? Did she seem happy? Was she upset? Did you overhear her say anything? While you're doing that, you're also going to want to be pulling security footage from the motel from the night of the 17th and the morning of the 18th and seeing if you can spot Jessica anywhere on it. If you do, which rooms did she go into and who did you see her with? Compare that to the list of people you've already compiled and compare that to any statements you've already been given. Was she caught on CCTV footage with people who denied seeing her? Is there anyone you saw her with that wasn't already on your list of people to question? If so, can any of the people you've already questioned identify the unidentified persons with Jessica? From what I've been told by multiple parties who investigated Jessica's case, at the time she went missing, there were either no cameras at the Deep South Motel or they were told there were no cameras. When I called, and mind you, it's been 10 months now, I was told that there were cameras at the front desk and facing the parking lot. Now, those are angles I specifically asked about. If there are more, I don't know. This hotel has since changed its name, and I can only imagine why, but when I did make contact with the front desk, while they were eager to answer my questions about the security cameras, they seemed more eager to figure out when I'd be staying there. I believe their exact words after I thanked them for their help were, so when are you coming? It's hard to tell without physically being there if they really do have cameras now and they didn't back then or if they still don't have cameras and they told me they did in the hopes that it would ensure I'd book a room there. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Knowing that no one seems to be able to place Jessica anywhere after being at the Deep South, it's important to try and figure out how she left. Whether she was alive or not when she left, she didn't vanish into thin air. She had to have left in some way, shape, or form. So next, you want to look into the vehicles that would have left the Deep South Motel the night of the 17th or the morning of the 18th. If the Deep South doesn't have cameras, that's okay because businesses on either side do. I checked. So, see which vehicles pass those cameras in the time frame of Jessica going missing. 
Sure, it might be tedious, but this is a human being we're talking about. Going through a monotonous amount of cars to narrow down where Jessica went and who she went with is worth the time. And frankly, it probably takes less time than not doing that and chasing your tail trying to figure out what the hell else to do to figure out where she went. This was a motel in the middle of the night involving a close-knit drug community where everyone knows everyone, and we already know whose phone she was using. Match phone guy up with a room number, or however many room numbers, and boom, you have your first scenes to process. Are any of Jessica's belongings there? Is this a situation where everything she owned was left behind, or is this a situation where we know she was there, but there's no trace of her? Both scenarios open up a lot of questions. We know that her duffel bag, purse, and tennis shoes have never been found, at least as far as her mother and Leah know, and frankly, they've been made aware of a lot that cannot be publicly shared. So again, we know Jessica was there, but most of her stuff is still unaccounted for. Did she take it with her and leave with someone to go to a second location, possibly their house? Or did something happen at the motel and someone made sure that no one would find a single trace of her there, knowing that other people might have seen them together the night before? We just so happened to know she used Phone Guy's phone at the Deep South that night. Could a defense attorney say that he lost his phone? Sure. Could a defense attorney argue that she stole his phone? Sure. But the simplest explanation is more often than not going to be the most likely one, that she was with Phone Guy and used his phone. If that's the case, that means that she would have had to have given the phone back to Phone Guy, which would then make him the last person we know of that ever saw Jessica alive. As of yet, no one has been able to report seeing her after she sent those last messages after midnight on the 18th. The problem with Phone Guy is that after police made contact with him, he hired an attorney. Detective Alliday with the Lee County Sheriff's Department actually described him to Crime Online as very uncooperative. Exigent circumstances surrounding a missing person's investigation can be enough for a department to get pings for a specific phone, but we haven't heard about them going on pinging sprees. The only phone we've heard about them pinging in relation to Jessica's disappearance is phone guys. But as far as the public knows, police haven't found anything at those ping locations leading them to Jessica. Someone who lives near Phone Guy happened to be driving by his house one day after Jessica was reported missing and told their friend that there had been police all over his place going through everything. So when it comes to Phone Guy, it sounds like a lot might be being kept close to the vest, and I don't think we even know the tip of the iceberg. He's never been publicly named, but people who know him have had things to say for and against him, and one comment was kind of both. A local in the community who knew Phone Guy said that they were on the fence because they knew him really well and couldn't see that from him. However, later in the conversation added that they didn't think he would have, but if he did do this, then he would make sure Jessica would never be found. Whatever the case may be, there is a mother out there who just spent her first Christmas not knowing if her daughter is even still alive. And there's a daughter out there still wondering where mommy is and why she didn't call on her birthday or Christmas this year. 
Jessica did live a high-risk lifestyle. There's no denying that. But her struggle with addiction and the worst moments of her life don't negate everything else wonderful about her. Her addiction doesn't change the fact that she was a kind and generous person who'd give you the shirt off her back if you complimented her on it. It doesn't negate the fact that her biggest dreams were once to be a star on American Idol. Being an addict doesn't diminish a person's worth. It doesn't make it less tragic when they go missing, and it doesn't make them less important to save. They too deserve a voice, and they too deserve justice. With everything you now know about Jessica's disappearance and everything you know about how we'd look into this if her case were a homicide investigation, what do you think we're looking at here? Do you think Jessica is still alive and missing, or do you think she was killed early that morning on the 18th? With that decision, who do you think needs to be looked into further? Share your thoughts with me on my Instagram or the Big Mad True Crime Facebook page or group. Now, before we wrap things up, I did want to add that since the original episode aired, all investigating parties did have a collective meeting about Jessica's case, and it sounds like it was really eye-opening and productive. So this case is going in the right direction. For all photos and maps pertaining to this case, check out Jessica's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley, and join me there tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern, where you go live with me and we talk about the twists and turns that are this case. Special thank you to Jessica's mom, Christina, and to Leah for allowing me to dive into their daughter's case with them. Even though this was the last episode of Jessica's series until there's an update, the Big Mad True Crime family is in this case for the long haul. If you like your podcast ad-free, head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, or for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you need more episodes in your life, for just $5 a month, you get a bonus episode on the first Monday of every month. All your episodes are ad-free, and you'll also receive a forever discount code for all Big Mad True Crime merch. And of course, anytime you sign up, you get instant access to all previous bonus episodes. I'll be bringing you a brand new case a week from today, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. <laughs>